I do love the Bible and the, the more I've taught the scriptures over the years, the more I just love it. And that's probably why I get kind of defensive, you know, with some of these college pipe puffing professors. If you always hear me talk about those guys. Uh, and uh, it's because they tend to diminish the Bible. And a lot of them, not all of them, there's some good ones out there, of course. But um, but it seems like uh, more and more people are, you know, they, they, they want to sort of one-up the Bible or they think they know something against the Bible. But, you know, I kind of liken people that are trying to push back at the Bible and act like it's full of errors and all this stuff. And uh, it's like taking a toothpick and trying to push a boulder. Good luck with that. Uh, the word of God is living and powerful. When Spurgeon, the, the preacher from the 1800s in London was asked, you know, um, what's the best way to defend the Bible? He said, defend the Bible. Um, the, the, you know, he says, how do you defend a lion? Just let it out of its cage. Uh, and that's, that's, that's right. The Bible is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, and I do love teaching the Bible. And, uh, you know, the, the more I uh, uh, study the scriptures, the, have you ever been reading the Bible and you just kind of get that burning in your heart of like, wow, God's word is amazing. Um, and, and I do have those moments, you know, where I just kind of feel like, oh, uh, Jeremiah had that. Uh, poor Jeremiah. He was a you know, prophet of the Old Testament who uh, nobody listened to him ever. Like, like for 42 years, he'd speak the word of the Lord. And then they're like, yeah, whatever. We don't believe you, Jeremiah. And they were mean to him, threw him in dungeons and did all kinds of horrible things to poor Jeremiah. And Jeremiah got to a point in his ministry, so said, I'm no longer gonna speak the word of the Lord. I am done. I'm hanging it up. I'm throwing in the towel. But then he says kind of rhetorically, but then, well, let me just show you. It's a great scripture. It's Jeremiah chapter 20, uh, right there in verse nine. Uh, Jeremiah says, then said I, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. In other words, he said, I was not gonna speak the word anymore, but the burning in the bones that I have for God's word, I couldn't hold back any longer. And he just had to keep preaching the word. Um, that's the way I feel, you know, I mean, even if nobody showed up this morning, I'd still be out just teaching the word because I, I love it. I, I love just sharing the word of God that's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And there's a burning, you know, that is in your heart. Well, that same burning in the heart happened to a couple guys uh, here in Luke 24, that same burning in the heart. Uh, I'm gonna call this a really good, positive heartburn. Uh, do you have good heartburn? I hope you have good heartburn because these guys did, and I hope, hope we do too. Um, these guys, uh, what made their hearts burn? Well, it's interesting. Um, Jesus, of course, spoiler alert, he's gonna raise from the dead here in our text on Wednesday night, uh, which is awesome. Uh, and uh, Jesus raising from the dead, he has these mysterious appearances to some of the disciples after he rose from the grave. And one of those sort of mysterious appearance, appearances was uh, with these two guys that were disciples. They weren't of the 12 disciples, uh, but they were of the greater group of disciples. Uh, we don't really know who these guys were other than one, name, one of the names is Cleopas. The other guy, we don't even know who he is, but, but they're walking away from Jerusalem. In fact, they're going to a little town called Emmaus, which um, interesting, just historically, nobody really knew where the city of Emmaus, Emmaus really was. Uh, some you know, people even said they don't even think it existed. It was just an um, invention of the Bible, like they always tend to say. Um, but within the past decade, they found some archeological uh, walls uh, that they've figured out. And uh, it actually revealed where the city of Emmaus was. And it was right where the Bible says, seven miles just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I love that. So these two guys are walking to Emmaus um, after Jesus died on the cross and they weren't aware of his resurrection yet, but he'd already risen from the grave. 
And so they're walking and they're sort of bummed. They're like, oh, we thought Jesus, they're talking amongst themselves, walking. Oh, we thought Jesus was the redeemer of Israel. Oh man, and he died. And they're like, what a bummer. And they're walking along all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. Uh, Jesus. Now, now what's interesting, they don't recognize Jesus. Have you ever wondered why people after the resurrection didn't recognize Jesus a lot of times? What was up with that? Um, uh, well, I'll answer that on Wednesday night. Uh, there's not enough time uh, today to deal with all that, but, but they didn't recognize him. And, uh, and he says, hey, what, what, are, uh, what are you guys, you know, bummed out about? What are you talking about? And then, you know, what's going on? And the two guys are like, what? You haven't been around? Like, everybody knows what's going on. Like, you've been hiding under a rock for three days? Like, what's the deal? Um, sorry, that, uh, that's not funny. Um, uh, they're like, what, why, don't you know? Now, now, question, did Jesus know what was going on? Of course, he was the victim of crucifixion. He's the one who rose from the grave. He knows all things being God in the flesh. So why would he ask these questions? Um, I think he wanted to talk with these guys and he was about to reveal to them some powerful, powerful truth that they do not know. The reason I point that out is because I think that's why prayer exists. You and I are meant to pray. And some people, some of you might say, well, God already knows what we have need of before we even ask. So why why even spend time praying? What a waste of time. God already knows and he's gonna do what he's gonna do. Well, um, that's a, a, a really fallacious way of thinking because I think God wants to talk with us. And he wants to reveal his truth to us. And, and he uses that vehicle of prayer uh, to spend time with us. So here's Jesus saying, hey, I wanna talk to you guys. Uh, what's going on? What are you bummed out about? He already knew, but he was wanting to say some more things to them. And, and these two disciples were lacking in faith. They really didn't hear the message that he was gonna die and resurrect from the grave. They were kind of foolish. Uh, it's easy for me to say that, but Jesus is gonna say that to them. Uh, you guys are foolish. You didn't really listen to what I had to say. So he's gonna to reveal to them even greater uh, truth. And so, you know, uh, you know he, he says, what, you know, don't you, the, the two guys say, don't you know what, what things have been happening? And Jesus said, what things? Uh, and then they explained to Jesus what had happened. It's kind of funny. Well, Jesus then uh, answers them and, and it does, he's not being mean here, I gotta say, but let's start uh, here in Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke chapter 24, we'll start in the red letters there in verse 25. Then Jesus, he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now question, what what do the prophets have anything to do? We're talking about Jesus. Well, the prophets spoke of Jesus. Remember that. Um, Verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? In other words, shouldn't these things have happened? And then... This is, the, this is the operative verse of the morning. This is the main scripture that I want to teach on is, is verse 27 here. It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Man, I, I love listening to good Bible teaching. Do you guys like listening to good Bible teaching? There's some good Bible teaching. You know, we're, we're so spoiled these days. You can download teachings from all over the world. You can listen to, you know, Bible teaching, which is so great. Uh, when I was a younger guy, you know, studying, I liked reading old Spurgeon sermons. I've read every, you know, sermon Charles Haddon Spurgeon's ever preached. I've got the volumes, the Metropolitan Tabernacle volumes. I've got the uh, pulpit series. I've got all of sort but. But I also, uh, over the years, I listened to a lot of teaching. Now, for you younger people, we used to have to listen to teachings with these things called cassette tapes. 
Um, and you used a pencil, you know, to kind of rewind them and stuff and get them right place. And, and if they broke in your cassette thing, you had to get tape and tape them. It, it was a, whole, a little different than clicking your iPhone. But, um, but I, I had boxes and boxes. I had a whole garage wall full of teaching tapes, uh, boxes uh, of, of teaching tapes, you know. And, um, and, and I, you know, I've, I've really appreciated, you know, that over the years. And, and I love that now it's free and easy and, you know, it's accessible. But it wasn't so much. But, you know, if I could take one teaching, if I could get a hold of one teaching only in the whole uh, history of the world, what teaching would I want to have or hear? Well, it'd be this one right here, verse 27, where Jesus taught these two guys all, did you see what it said here? Beginning at Moses. That's the five books of the Pentateuch. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is, yeah, it's a long walk. Uh, yeah, uh, I would hope so. I would hope that would be a long sermon, you know, because wow, Jesus saying, you wanna know about me in the Old Testament? Let me tell you. And as they're walking to Emmaus, Jesus says, well, you remember this, remember that? That's all about me. And I, I just get a sense as I study the Bible, that, do you ever feel like you're just scratching the surface in our understanding and the layers of the Bible? Um, you know, um, and, and, and the cool thing about this, when they, when they heard this, um, what's so interesting about this, when they heard this, um, what was their response? Let's do a little sneak preview of Wednesday night. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, it says, and they, the two guys said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. Jesus opened the scriptures to them and said, here's where it's all about me, me, me. Oh, I wish I could have that teaching. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna, I'm gonna download that one. Uh, uh, but, but all that to say, it, it sort of spurs me on to say, that's what we should be looking for. When you read the Old Testament, you should be looking for Jesus because Jesus told these guys, did you understand? It's all about my coming, my death, my burial, and my resurrection. It's all in the scriptures. Um, and, and I love this about that. Now, now the thing about the, you know, this, this idea of the burning in the heart, um, how can you and I have that burning? Do, do you want that? Do you wanna have that burning in your heart for the word of God? I, I know I do. And, and I, I find just you know, being able to do what we do here um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing that happens if you're ever in a place of teaching the Bible, whether it's Sunday school or in a church setting like this, um, you know, there's that studying and the work you do to study the word. But the more you teach, the more you preach, the more the burning of the, like, like Jeremiah, the burning in your bones or, or like these guys, the burning in the heart, um, you know, the secret to having a love for God's word and a burning in your heart, I think, is Jesus in the word of God. Um, Old Testament, New Testament, every word, every letter, every space between the letters, I believe it's inspired, the word of God, it's all about Jesus. That's why Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven reminds us, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God, which of course is a quote from Psalm 40, verses six through eight. Uh, the context uh, really points that the whole book, lo, I come in the volume of the book, the word of God. Um, Matthew chapter five, verse 17 and 18. Think not that I've come to destroy the law. That's the Old Testament or the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. Um, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Moses and the prophets. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, 
one jot, uh, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Boy, when you talk to your Jewish friends, make sure and don't say Christianity replaces Judaism. Nope, wrong. Christianity is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Uh, it's the continuation of God's plan through the ages, which is such an important way to look at it. And not one jot or tittle. What's a jot or tittle? Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Let me just remind you, in the Hebrew writing, it's like crossing a T and dotting an I, only in the Hebrew, a, a yacht is actually that little tiny mark, like that's a Hebrew word with, uh, for Jehovah, but the, the mark, the yod. And then, and then the two letters, uh, bet and kaf, um, you know, the one without the little tittle uh, at the end, their little tail, uh, that's kaf. But if you add that tiny little mark uh, on your letter, uh, it becomes a, a bet. Um, uh, you know, the letters there. Um, so they're like tiny little characters in the Hebrew writing. There's not one little jot or tittle that's gonna pass from the law until it's all, you know, it's all gonna be fulfilled. I love that. All scripture speaks of Jesus, penned by human hands, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed through God's spirit out to humanity as they wrote the scriptures. And the more you study about the Bible, the more your heart will burn, especially when, it's, when you realize and see Jesus in the word of God. Um, how much is Jesus in the word of God? Uh, well, do you remember how John started his gospel? In John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not only in all the word, he is the embodiment of the word. I mean, this is such a powerful thing when you, as a Christian, start to realize the beauty and the power and the depth and the layers that we see in the, in the Holy Bible. Um, the layers, what about the layers? If you read the Bible, as so many people try to, they say, oh yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible, yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, when a person says that to me, I, I often like to say, really? Have you really read the Bible? Because I've found that most people, um, when they say, yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible, they've maybe read a few verses here and there in their lifetime. Um, and if you call them out on it, say, well, what part of the Bible did you like the most? Which book of the Bible did you think was most interesting? Uh, uh, Hezekiah, first Hezekiah. Uh, uh, that's not a book of the Bible, that's first Babylonians. Um, you gotta, a lot of people claim to have read the Bible. Now, if they have read the Bible, they erroneously might just read it as a book of literature. Now, I'm just gonna say, if you read the Bible just as a book of literature, guess what? It's actually pretty interesting. There's some amazing stories, and you know, if you like battles and, and drama and scandal and all that stuff, it's all there in literature. But frankly, um, a one-time read through the Bible as a book of literature, I can see why somebody say, well, the Bible's kind of boring and stuff like that. I don't really get it. You know, it's, it's just a book of literature. But that's not, that's not really what the Bible is. The Bible is the Word of God, living and powerful. And what makes the Bible unique? Uh, it's not just a book of literature. There's layer, like an onion, you know, an onion layer upon layer of the Bible. You can just keep peeling back the layers and you start seeing just the power and the beauty. Uh, let me just share with you kind of and show you some of the layers uh, that, that makes my heart burn in the good sense, heartburn um, in a good sense. Uh, layer number one, I, I don't know what to call these layers, but I'm gonna just jump into it and try. First of all, there's, there's the Jesus seen in the Bible in, in a layer, and I'm gonna call it the overt. And, and we're talking most about the Old Testament because 
The Old Testament, of course, Jesus is in the New Testament. Everybody says, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, that's Jesus. And Book of Acts, if you wanna include that. Um, but uh, that's a wrong view if you're saying that Jesus is only in the Gospels. Jesus is in the volume of the book, and, and it's very overt. If, you, you know, if you're just reading the Bible as literature, that's one thing, but the next sort of level you might wanna get to, and I'm gonna call this level one, because it's really all about Jesus, is to see the overt speaking of Jesus and the prophecies and the words about the coming of Jesus all in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus says to these guys, what, don't you guys understand the law and the prophets? Um, I'm the fulfillment of that. He's trying to tell these two guys on the road to, uh, to Emmaus. So the question might be, well, Pastor Brett, uh, what are the overt things? Well, let's remind, do you remember last week we talked about Psalm 22 when we were talking about Jesus on the cross? And Psalm 22 is called the Psalm of the Cross. And yet it was written a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. And yet with such detail and precision, David, the king of Israel, wrote a poem that summarizes the cross of Jesus Christ to the piercing of his hands and feet with the nails, to the people wagging their heads and mocking, saying, he saved others himself he cannot save, to the, even the words that he declared, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of that was spoken of there in Psalm 22, prophetically by Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. Is, is that just a coincidence? Did he just happen to get it right? Wow, what an amazing thing that David, thousand years earlier, uh, spoke of the cross very overtly. And even a nominal you know, Bible reader can kind of go, yeah, that's probably talking about the cross of Jesus. Like you don't even have to be that smart to kind of see that overt sort of mentioning of the cross in the Old Testament. Uh, don't just breeze over how amazing that is. I think people forget the, the miraculous nature of the prophecy of the Bible, especially as it relates to Jesus. Um, is that just a, a coincidence? No, I call that a god wince that God made that happen. Uh, God made his word, you know, to be the Messiah. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to fulfill 351 specific prophecies in the Old Testament to check the box of saying, this is the one, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, 351 specific prophecies um, concerning the Messiah. What are the odds of one guy fulfilling 351 specific prophecies from a book that was written you know, over thousands of years and being the one guy that fulfills those 351? Um, you, know, uh, you know, examples of these specific overt prophecies? Let me remind you of a few. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, do you remember there the prophet Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Micah said, he shall be born in Bethlehem. That's how, remember when the, the you know, um, the wise men came and asked the, the, you know, the priest, well, where is he going to be born? And the priest was like, ah, somewhere in Bethlehem. Prophet Micah said that, you know, centuries ago. And the religious guys could care less, but the, the wise men came and they wanted to know where Bethlehem was and, and what the deal was. That was prophesied by Micah, chapter five, verse two. Um, uh, how would Jesus be born? Uh, of a virgin, born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter seven foretold that. Um, the exact day when Jesus would ride in Jerusalem, Daniel chapter nine, the 70 weeks of Daniel prophesies this amazing time period ascribed to the Jews and, and Jerusalem. And if they do their math, they could have figured out. That's why Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known in this thy day. Um, what day? What, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, how could they have known the day? Daniel chapter nine, a very overt prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Um, Zechariah 11 gives us all kinds of overt prophecies about Jesus that had to be exactly fulfilled. Betrayed by a friend, 
uh, uh, sold for silver. Uh, the silver would be thrown on the temple floor. Um, the silver would be used to purchase a potter's field. All of those are found in Zechariah 11. Very, that's just, that's four of them right there. Um, and then of course, Jesus's death, um, there, you know, Psalm 22 that I just mentioned, that's another one. I just, you know, just spoke really quickly, eight specific prophecies uh, that were very specific, overt prophecies about the coming Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Old Testament scripture fulfilled. Um, what are the odds of that? When I was a kid, I was pointed to this fun book, uh, this, this sort of scientist guy, Dr. Peter Stoner. Uh, it's, I think it's from the 50s, but I loved it uh, as a kid because this scientist sort of showed just the Bible and its uh, power. It's an old book that I used to read when I was a kid. Um, Science Speaks, an evaluation of uh, certain Christian evidences. And, and uh, you know, I loved what he did because he's the guy that uh, sort of did the math, uh, the probability. What are the probabilities? I just gave you eight specific prophecies of, of Jesus. What are the probabilities of Jesus, those eight things being fulfilled? The, it's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's not a very good chance of something happening. You're, you're way more likely to win the Oregon lottery than to uh, have a chance of one in 10 to the 17th. That's one with uh, you know 17 zeros after it, whatever number that is. It's a big number. Um, now, what you know, Peter Stoner did for us when I was a kid is he, he, he explained, this is what that looks like, because who knows what one in 10 to the 17th power really means. He said, pretend you take the state of, I've shared this before, but I, I love this one. You know, to, to, to pretend you fill the state of California full of nuts, just pretend. <laughs> What's so funny? Hey, I'm from California. I was born there. So are some of you. But anyway, um, <clears throat> You, you know those little planters, peanuts with the shell? You know, the shell ones? You, you, just, um, you just take and fill California. If you fill it with one in 10 to, the, or, you know, 10 to the 17th power amount of nuts, it would be three feet deep. The whole state of California would be three feet deep, deep in nuts. Now, um, you take one of those nuts somewhere in the state of California and you secretively go with a permanent market and mark an X on one of those nuts and then hide it somewhere, Redding, San Francisco, San Diego, uh, Mojave Desert, wherever you want to go and, and know how you can go deep or shallow, whatever you want to do, hide it. Then, Dr. Stoner says, you take a little chipmunk and you put a backpack, a parachute on him and you fly over the state of California and then poof, you push the chipmunk out and he floats down to the ground and he reaches down and picks up the first nut and opens it and eats it. The odds of that chipmunk, you know, picking up that, that you know, nut with an X on it is one in 10 to the 17th power. Um, that's just eight of the prophecies of Jesus. And, and, and the thing that I want to remind you, it's not just eight specific prophecies. How many did I say? Let me just give you a wall so you can memorize it in a few minutes here. 351 specific prophecies. And I've got here the Old Testament reference and the New Testament fulfillment for you. So I'll give you a minute. Okay, anyway, <laughs> now that you've seen all those and have them all memorized, um, what are the odds of one person specifically fulfilling all of these prophecies? Uh, it's just astronomical. The word might be impossible. Impossible, unless you're God. Unless you're God who became God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and then fulfills all these prophecies. These are the overt um, things spoken of Jesus. Now, Jesus could have said to these guys, some of these or all of these, hey, and I fulfilled those, those things. And that'd be one thing. 
But there's a second level that I like to kind of bring up too, and it's a little more mysterious, um, one that I do love about the Bible. The Bible is so multi-layered. So the overt layer, and, and you might be a fairly new Christian and really see these and start to figure out all these. But if you keep reading and keep studying, you get to what I might call the more covert uh, reading of the Bible. Now there's a mysterious thing about God. For some reason, God um, speaks in mysteries. Uh, Jesus even spoke in parables and some people were supposed to understand them and some people weren't. And, and God does sort of seem to speak cryptically in some cases in the Bible. And there's places where we can prove that and see that. And it's something about the, the, the Lord. He's the revealer of secrets. And he also likes his word to be understood as time unfolds. Remember like the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel didn't understand anything. And he's like, what do I, and, and the Lord says, Daniel, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. We talked about this a couple of nights ago at Prophecy Update. Um, and it's kind of an important part of Bible prophecy that, that we'll, we'll understand prophecy and end times better and better as we get down the road, closer to the end. But when it comes to other things, the Lord seems to be somewhat mysterious. And I think there's little hidden gems in the word of God. Now, there's a caveat to this. You have to be really careful. If you're looking for hidden gems in the Bible and making up new stuff with those things, that's a total wrong way to do it. You can't do that. Um, don't come up with some new idea. I like all the covert things tucked away in the Bible are also spoken very overtly in the Bible. Uh, I want to make that important uh, announcement because you know somebody said, "Well, I see in the Bible that there's these um, the, these people that were you know smashing rocks with a with, with a stick and water was coming out. So we are the uh, rock smashing church and and we we smash rocks and and thus saith Lord, it's a hidden thing that if you smash rocks, then eh, that's not what it meant. Uh, you're being wacko. Uh, don't be wacko." Well, what do you mean, Brett? What, what kind of covert stuff? Well, let me give you a few examples. Um, this is something that's kind of tucked away. Do you remember in Genesis uh, chapter one, uh, verse one and two? And, and you know, it's very early in the Bible. We see one of the first covert mentions of Jesus, I believe. Um, and it has to do with, um, let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Anybody know the answer to that? He was there. We know that overtly from the book of Colossians. Colossians tells us that Jesus was there at creation. And Jesus, uh, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. So we know that already. But in Genesis one, it says, uh, you, know, uh, you know, God says, let us make man in our image. Um, was God just using the, the correct pronouns? That's ridiculous. By the way, there's people that are arguing that right now. It's stupid. Um, that's not what the first part of Genesis is, is all about. When God says, let us make man in our image, we're, we're seeing this amazing mention of God, one God in three persons, the Holy Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity. I believe when it says, let us make man in our image, that's God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all there at creation. The Spirit's moving across the waters of creation. God, the Father's speaking, let there be light. Um, and Jesus is there as well. Let us. We're, we already have this kind of covert mention of Jesus right there in the first few verses of the Bible. Go all the way to chapter three of Genesis. You have another very mysterious verse. It might be uh, give you a headache if you read it. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise this heel. Huh? What's that all about? Well, remember, this is where God is passing out curses because of the fall of man and sin. Now, humanity's in deep trouble because they've sinned and they're headed for certain doom and death and hell. That's the problem. 
But God says this mysterious little verse, verse three, chapter 315 of Genesis. And the Lord says, I will put a enmity between thee, Satan, the serpent, and the woman. Do women like snakes generally? Not generally. Uh, it's kind of funny. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. That's not really only what it's about. That's about Satan. And between thy seed and her seed. Huh? See, a, a person who knows what's being said here, seed, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about this is the, the, the Hebrew word is zira, which means semen. Um, not to be too graphic, if you look at the Greek Septuagint, the, the, the word is sperma. Now, the reason this is mysterious and some of you are like, okay, Brett, move along. We don't need to talk about this. No, we do. Because the seed comes from the man, not the woman. But it says, um, between thy seed and her seed, the seed of a woman, which is kind of strange. Why would that say that? Scholars have concluded this is talking about Jesus. This is the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why those that are smarter than we are, uh, they call this the proto-evangelium. You're saying, I like peanut butter and jellium. No, 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 proto-evangelium, it means, it means first, proto, first mention of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where Christ would crush the head of the serpent, uh, born of a virgin. This is all tucked away mysteriously in this verse. I'm gonna say that's a little more of a covert sort of mention. You, you wouldn't just read this verse and get the gospel message. However, when you know the gospel message and you see what the rest of the Bible teaches, you kind of go, Wow, God had a plan from the very beginning. Um, you know, it just, it gets more and more mysterious. The, the, the fingerprints of God are all over the Bible. I like the, the uh, genealogy of Genesis chapter five. Do you like the genealogy? Hey, let's turn there. Why don't you turn to G Genesis five? Let me show you something. This is really cool. In Genesis chapter five, you know, one of those most favorite places of the Bible, the genealogies. You guys read the genealogies? Uh, I read it when I go to bed at night to help me sleep, uh, you say. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, they think, oh, the, reading through the Bible, getting those genealogies. But the longer I read the Bible, the more I, I'm like, we need to spend some time in the genealogies because I believe there's more than just a list of names. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Let me just show you this. This is a short genealogy because it goes from Adam all the way to Noah, the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world. This is sort of the genealogy of those people. And so it's not a super long list. And of course, we read it in Genesis 5. It starts with Adam there in verse 5, Genesis 5, 5, where it says, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. Um, and then verse nine, Enos lived 90 years and begat Cainan. Verse 12, Cainan lived 70 years and begat Mahalil, the first Hawaiian in the Bible. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, so then you got Mahalil, verse 15, lived 60 and five years and begat Jared. And then verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and he begat Enoch. Um, and uh, verse 21, Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah and Enoch walked with God. And after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. Verse 25, and so Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. And verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son and called his name Noah, saying, um, this, uh, this same uh, shall comfort, this same being Noah, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because the ground of the Lord which is cursed. Um, why did Lamech uh, name his son Noah? He tells us the meaning of Noah's name, which means rest and comfort. 
Um, why would Lamech do that? He says, well, we got all this work to do because of the curse of Adam. So let's, let's name Noah Noah uh, just because he brings comfort in, uh, even though we have to do all this work. So what, what this does is it makes you kind of wonder, well, who cares what Noah's name means? Why does the Bible give us that? Well, some scholars have done some thinking, well, I wonder why he tells us Noah's name meaning, but what are all the other names? So this is where you can kind of start to, you to dig a little deeper. Um, what does the name Adam mean? Well, the name Adam, uh, the first guy on the list here, his name means man, which makes sense, doesn't it? Um, uh, he's the first man. Um, and it comes from the, the word Adoma, which means man. Um, and then you got the second guy, Seth. His name means appointed. Um, we know that because Eve named him appointed. Do you remember there, uh, it says when he was born, Eve said, uh, for God hath appointed to me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. So she names him appointed because uh, the Lord appointed another in place of Abel's death. And that's how we know, you know, that. that. Enosh, the, the third guy uh, on the list there, um, his name is, shockingly means subject to death. Um, you know, or you might say mortal, you know, like um, uh, you're gonna die. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it can mean mortal, frail, miserable, uh, very depressing word. So if you're naming your, if you're a pregnant lady and you want to name Bible names, I'd probably avoid this one, Enosh. Uh, hey, come here, subject to death. That's not a very great name for a child, but they, um, it's, a, it's used uh, for grief and woe, uh, upon, uh, and that's Enosh's name. Kenan, uh, uh, Enosh's son, he was named Kenan, uh, which um, means uh, like a sorrowful. Um, another, uh, these, these mothers must have had uh, not such a fun time being mothers, naming their kids this sorrowful. Uh, it's a dirge uh, or elegy, almost like a funeral kind of vibe is the word Kenan, sorrowful. Uh, the Hawaiian guy, Mahalil, that I told you about, uh, because he lives in Hawaii, he's called the blessed God. Um, no, I'm, again, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, Mahalil's interesting. It comes from Mah, um, which uh, the first, you know, the first word there, um, uh, interestingly enough, um, the, 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 the Mah part uh, means blessed, but the last part, El, Mahalel, the L at the end there means God. It means the blessed God, just when you put it together together. Uh, in the, in the syllables. Jared, uh, Yared, uh, as the Hebrews would say, uh, his name means, this is interesting, shall come down. Now, where did he get this name, shall come down? Um, it, it comes from the verb uh, Yared, which means uh, shall come down. Uh, some authorities suggest that this might've been an allusion, by the way, to the son, remember Genesis 6, the sons of God who came down uh, uh, to corrupt the daughters of men there in Genesis chapter six, resulting in the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Remember that whole thing? Um, some say Jared got his name from that sort of global event that took place back in Genesis six. And uh, that's kind of an interesting theory, but it means one come, one come down or sh shall come down. Um, uh, Enoch, uh, many of you know this name already because you've heard sermons. Enoch's a favorite in the Bible as far as characters, walked with God, pleased God, but his name means dedicated. He was the first of four generations of preachers. He was a guy who uh, gave the oldest prophecy in the Bible. We read that in the book of Jude. Enoch was sort of a prophet also, um, which deals with the second coming of Christ of all things. Then you got Methuselah, the guy that lived older than anybody else in the history of the world, 969 years. You gotta understand in the antediluvian world, the world was different. People lived longer and um, you might laugh at that, but um, you know, it, it really uh, makes sense if you kind of read the Bible and understand the pre-flood world that they lived in. It was very different than the world we live in today. But the flood of Noah 
didn't come as a surprise. Um, it was preached for four generations, the flood of Noah. Something strange happened when Enoch was 65, from, from uh, which time he, remember, walked with God, it says here. Um, Enoch was given a prophecy, as long as the son was alive, Methuselah, as long as the son was alive, the flood would be withheld. That was the sort of the prophecy. But as soon as Methuselah would die, then uh, the flood would be sent forth. Um, so where did this word Methuselah, what did it mean? His death shall bring. Enoch named his son to reflect this prophecy that the flood would come uh, upon his death. Kind of interesting. The root there, muth, means death, and, and shalak is the root word, which means to bring or send forth. Uh, so the, the name Methuselah signifies his death shall bring. Interestingly enough, Lamech uh, sounds like a word you and I know. Uh, it's related, uh, lament uh, or lamentation. Lamech suggests uh, despair and despairing. That's what the name Lamech means, despairing. And then you got Noah, which his name is already mentioned and, and it's mentioned in the text. It means to bring rest or comfort. Um, you say, okay, Brett, this is why we don't go through the genealogies. Boring, this is the worst sermon we've ever heard. Come on, let's move along. Um, well, this is where I find my heart starts to burn. Um, when I realize, when you put those, when you look at this as a kind of a composite list of the names we just went over, it, it it's kind of reads kind of an interesting little narrative. It says, <laughs> it says, man appointed, subject to death, sorrowful. The blessed God shall come down dedicated. His death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. To me, I see the gospel message embedded in something I would have never, I would have never seen. That's one of these more, now, now again, I'm not coming up with something new here, just coming up with a bunch of names and stuff. This, this is the gospel message. Man is appointed to death because of our sin uh, in the garden and all the way through. There's no one righteous, not even one. And because of our sin, there's sorrow and, and suffering. But the blessed God, he's, he literally, God became a man. God came down, dedicated his life to go and die on the cross and his death will bring to the despairing, all of us sinful people, um, rest and comfort. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Um, you see, this starts to make my heart burn when I read the Bible and I start to see, by the way, genealogies are full of this stuff. Uh, when we were in Matthew about a year ago or two years ago, maybe, I don't know. Uh, remember the genealogy in Matthew chapter one? There's sort of a strange hidden thing there too that's kind of fun. Uh, and Dr. Ivan Benin, back in the 1800s, he's this old mathematician guy who spent his whole life doing math on Matthew chapter one genealogy. And, and what he found was, um, he found uh, that everything in the Greek text of that genealogy, the original language of the New Testament, everything was in multiples of seven, shockingly. Oh, impossibly, like, like if you wrote a paragraph and you said, I want everything, the amount of vowels used, uh, the amount of ands that I used and the amount of uh, uh, consonants and the amount of men I talk about and the amount of women I talk about, and you wanna write a paragraph that everything's in multiples of seven, do you realize that'd be really hard to do? You might, if you used AI, you could maybe write a paragraph and have things all fit with multiples of seven uh, using like computer technology to do that. but. Try doing that, write a big long paragraph, but make it a real genealogy with real people that came and went throughout history and everything works out to be multiples of seven. You can't even do that. Like there, there's no way, even with an AI thing, you couldn't figure that out. 
And yet, there in Matthew chapter one, you can look him up. Dr. Ivan Benin, you can see it, he, he spells it out. It's not for the, it's for you math people. I, I get kind of uh, short-circuited when I start uh, thinking about multiples of seven. But uh, interesting, the Bible, the number seven is the, the number of completion and perfection. It's the one that mostly points us to God. And it's such a, it's, it's like God just says, watch this, I'm gonna make a real genealogy of, of Jesus but everything's gonna be multiples of seven. It's almost like the Lord says, I'm just gonna leave my fingerprints on that little genealogy to make you realize my Bible is more than just some book of literature. It's layer upon layer of beautiful, powerful meaning. Um, so that's, that's, that's level, that's like level two stuff. You know, the, the, you know, the, the covert stuff that you just kind of go, wow, I can't believe that's tucked away. I get a sense that you and I miss so much. When we get to heaven, we're just going to go, oh man, why didn't we see that? Uh, I, I have a hunch. We're going to realize the Bible is way deeper than we ever imagined, all pointing to Jesus Christ. There's a third level that I want to say. It's not quite as mysterious, but it still makes my heart burn when I read the Bible. And, and I'm going to call this level three, the pictures, the pictures in the Bible. The, I always say the Old Testament is a giant picture book of New Testament truths, pictures about the truth of Jesus Christ. I wonder if Jesus, when he talked to these two guys, Cleopas and the other, and said, hey, uh, let me show you where I'm talked about in the Old Testament. I wonder if he went to some of the pictures. Um, the pictures are, are like this. Let me, let, let me, let's, let's turn to Genesis. Would you flip over to Genesis real quick? Genesis chapter 22. And uh, let me show you uh, how a picture in the Old Testament, you know, and a lot of you guys, if you're new, new to the Bible, this will be somewhat new, but um, if you've read your Bible and you know this gospel of Jesus, you've started to see these amazing pictures in the Bible, but uh, the Bible's full of these most incredible pictures. Uh, I love this one. This is just one to start with, Genesis 22. It's the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac going up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. Uh, what a uh, scary story if you're Isaac. It's uh, Genesis 22:1. it says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abram, uh, he said, behold, here am I. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah to offer him there a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they both went them together, both of them together. And Isaac spake to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. Uh, and he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told them of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar of the, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now you say, Brett, why do they do this weird, you know, Abraham? And he's like, hey, here am I. You gotta remember, Abraham's over a hundred years old. I wonder if he's a little hard of hearing. Like, okay, I'm gonna stab my son, Abraham. Eh, eh, here I am. Like, that's what's going on, this poor guy. He's over a hundred years old. 
Um, uh, here I am, Lord, verse 12. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast withheld, not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Now, you say, okay, Brad, I, re I read that story when I was a kid. I, I colored it in Sunday school, the little seven-year-old laying on the altar, bound up and the dad, you know, getting ready to plunge the knife. Uh, yeah, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, that story, there should be a little bit of a, there's, there, there's often little signals that kind of make you think, is there something deeper to this story that actually happened? But it's also maybe a picture. Maybe it should be a, a cue to us when Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. That's a pretty, that's like even a, a beginner Bible student say, okay, John the Baptist called Jesus the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What's going on here? Well, I see this amazing story. Um, uh, let's, let's break it down. Just as, I'll just do kind of a quick version of this. There's, there's so much more to this, but I'm just gonna give you a quick. In verse two here, it says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Question, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, Abraham messed up, if you remember, and he sinned, slept with Hagar, and had a son called Ishmael. Uh, caused a little problem in the world, Ishmael and Isaac, and still problem today. The Arab nation came from Ishmael, and the Jews came from, are, are the Jews and the Arabs getting along? No. Anyway, uh, that, that, that's kind of an interesting point. So did God make a mistake by saying, Abraham, take your son, your only son? Um, God didn't make a mistake. I believe God covers our mistakes. He remembers our sins no more, he puts them away. But also there's a picture that God is wanting to paint here in this story. Because remember, um, uh, how many sons does God have? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the same language. Take your only begotten son, Isaac, uh, which is kind of interesting. That should be a little bit of a signal to us. Um, so this is a painting picture. Um, and then he says, take your only son, verse two, um, whom thou lovest. Uh, you know, of course, Abraham loved his son, uh, Isaac, but it's interesting that it's put there. The only son that he loves, did God love his son? Um, remember when Jesus came and was baptized? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, same picture. We got a father with a love for his son, his only begotten son of the father. Um, and, um, and then he says, verse two, get thee into the land of Moriah and go to a mountain which I will show thee of. And so Abraham wanders around. Now you understand this isn't where Abraham lives yet. He's not living in, in this area of Moriah. He, he travels there with a couple dudes and a donkey and they travel a long ways and they get out into the wilderness uh, where this mountain is Moriah that God shows Abraham. He says, this is the mountain where I want you to do this. Now you say, well, so big deal, whatever, some mountain in the wilderness. No, it was just a mountain in the wilderness when Abraham was there in Genesis 22. But later, guess what else happened on that mountain? If you remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse one, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple at, at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. If you remember, 
By the time David comes around, you know, a thousand years later, um, guess what happened? There's a city there now where Moriah was, and it became the city eventually of Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah is the same as that mountain, the Temple Mount, where the temple was built. Um, what else happened on the Temple Mount? Well, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know the Temple Mount is a big area that was flattened on the top of Mount Moriah, but just outside the city walls and just outside the Temple Mount on the same mountain is a little place called Golgotha, the Hill of the Skull, part of the same mountain. Isn't it interesting that this little story of Isaac about ready to be sacrificed by the father who loves his only begotten son happened in the exact same geographical location where Jesus, the beloved of God, was crucified on a cross. The same place, a thousand years later. Coincidence? No, Godowins, the Temple Mount. Now, um, as you, as you kind of continue, um, it says in verse three, I gotta go quicker, you know, he saddled his donkey. Uh, was there ever a donkey involved in Jesus? Well, remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Kind of interesting. And verse three in our text of Genesis 22, he took two men with him. Did Jesus have two guys going with him up to Mount Calvary, Mount Moriah? If you remember, we read about that last week, the two malefactors, the two thieves that were by Jesus. Isaac has two guys going up Mount Moriah with him, along with the father. Interesting picture. Um, verse four, it says, and on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eye. Does the third day mean anything to you? Uh, Jesus rose on the third day. I mean, there's, there's oh, so many things. Jesus ministered for three years. There's kind of some interesting correlations to some of this. Um, now here's where it, you might say it breaks down. Um, you know, verse five, I and the lad shall go yonder and worship, he says. Um, the word lad is sort of an unfortunate uh, translation. In the Bible, the word lad is better translated young man. He was a young man. You colored the picture of him being seven, tied up by his father, and, and people are starting to call CSD and stuff like that, children's services. But, um, but no, that's not what happened. This 100-year-old guy's bringing his, probably in his young 30s, um, according to this word, it's the same problem. Remember when you read the story of uh, Elisha the prophet who was bald, and the young kids came up and made fun of Elisha and said, go up that bald man, go up that bald man. And Elisha says, you guys are cursed because of what you've done. And there's gonna, you're gonna die. And suddenly these she bears come running out of the woods and ate up all the uh, little children that made fun of the bald prophet. That's, a, that's like a life scripture for some of you bald guys. You can claim that scripture. <laughs> Don't make fun of bald people, the Bible says. Um, now, uh, you, you think that's another story I didn't color in Sunday school, the bears chomping children because they made fun of the bald guy. But the word children there is the same kind of word here of the word lad where it means um, young men. These were young men making fun of the prophet of the Lord, not just because of baldness. They were, making, they were purposefully just trying to be mean to the prophet of the Lord. And so God judged them with these bears that came and chewed them up. The point is, you gotta be careful when you read lad. It's, it, it probably is the young to mid-30s is how old Isaac was. Interesting, Jesus was, of course, young to mid-30s when he went up on the cross to die for the sins of the world, not a child. Uh, kind of important thing to see. Um, here's something, verse five. Um, Abraham said to his young men, abide here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Do you think the father in this story believed his son would resurrect from the grave. Abraham knew he was gonna sacrifice Isaac. That, that was his plan. But he says, I and the lad are gonna go, but we, me and the lad, are gonna come back to you later. Oh, Brett, you're just trying to force the story into that. 
the whole Abraham believing that uh, Isaac would be resurrected. You're just reading into that story. You wanna know one of the best commentaries on the Bible? Write this down. It's the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And I absolutely know Abraham was counting on Isaac raising from the dead. How do I know that? It's not me, it's the Bible. Uh, you can jot this down, Hebrews 11:9 in the story account there in the heroes of faith of Hebrews 11, it says concerning the story that Abraham accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received in him a figure. See, this is the New Testament verse that gives us a signal that, oh wow, this, there's something about that story in Genesis 20, 22 that is kind of maybe linked to the idea of resurrection. Um, so Abraham believed, I can be absolutely certain about that one. I know you thought I was trying to force the story, but no, this is the Bible giving us license. Um, look at verse six, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and where did he put the wood of the offering? On Isaac, his son. Even as Jesus went up the same mountain with wood on his back, uh, you know, thousands of years later, now we got Isaac, you know, doing the same thing, going up the same mountain, carrying the wood uh, of his own sacrifice, the wood that would burn him, if you would. Speaking of the fire, verse six, and he took fire in his hand. The fire speaks of judgment. Um, and a knife, a uh, picture maybe of the spear that went in Jesus' side. I'm just going quickly here. Um, and then of course, verse eight is the biggest sign of all. Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. You might say, well, Brett, why did God then provide not a, a lamb, but a ram? Well, that's easy. There's only one true lamb of God. In this case, there was a substitution and the substitution was a ram. Isn't it interesting that from Abraham and all the way from Moses, um, all the way through the generations, what would be the substitute? In the Old Testament, the substitute for the lamb was rams, bulls, goats, birds, all kinds of animals would be substitute in place of the lamb. Uh, which is Jesus. That's why John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb, which takes away the sins of the world. Um, this is setting a precedent for sacrifice before Jesus would actually die on the cross. <clears throat> and verse eight, <clears throat> or pardon me, verse nine, uh, it says, and uh, they put the wood in order and bound Isaac. Do you remember in Mark chapter 15, verse one, Jesus was also bound, uh, the, the Bible tells us. Um, and then verse 14, the name of the place is Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. God provides, provides what? Forgiveness of sin, eternal life through the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah. Man, we could go on. I just gave you my favorite parts of this. It goes deeper if you just keep reading and looking and you start to see, wow, <clears throat> Jesus, lo, I come in the volume of the book and it's all written of me. Um, if you read the Old Testament, it's just some old book, you will get bored at times. But if you read it and search for Jesus, the Messiah, and see Jesus in the pages of scripture, it comes alive. And guess what? Your heart will burn when you read the Bible. You'll think, oh, this is the living word of God. Can you understand maybe you say, Brett, you shouldn't talk about pastors by name. You know, and I've called some pastors out by name, like Andy Stanley. Why do I bash Andy Stanley? Because Andy Stanley said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Do you understand how horrible that is? You might as well say we, we need to unhitch ourselves from Jesus, the Messiah, because lo, I come in the volume of the book. That's why most pastors are like, yeah, Andy shouldn't have said that. 
uh, along with a lot of other things he said, but I'm just gonna say it. Um, watch out for these ministries and churches are saying, yeah, the Old Testament, that's the old, that's for the Jews. The New Testament's for us as Christians. And they make this huge separation, huge mistake. We gotta take the whole word of God because man, if you read it, you'll see it. Jesus is there. You don't wanna miss any part of Jesus. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. And man, the, the pictures just go on and on. Rahab, the harlot, there at Jericho, the whole city of Jericho gets destroyed. But Rahab, she's not destroyed because she believes. And what was the mark that she had that saved her? The scarlet rope that was hung from her window, the scarlet thread. I see that as the scarlet thread that goes through the whole Old Testament pointing to the blood of our savior, Jesus Christ. We could just go on and on. The rock that was smitten where water came out and saved the children of Israel. We know that was Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says the rock that followed them, water came out. That was Christ. That's the picture. And it starts to make the Old Testament when you read it, you just think, man, I gotta read this again and again and again, and how appropriate, we're finishing the Bible, our second lap through, and we're gonna start again next week, going again, because we just can't get enough. We're gonna keep studying this book to, to, the, to the rapture of the church, or to the day we die, because it's, yeah, amen. Amen. Um, now, as I close, I wanna say this. If you're not a Christian, because you say, oh, the Bible's just some book, can I challenge you to take another look? Don't just, you know, listen to the college professor. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions and the Bible's just a book of literature and just diminish, diminish, diminish. No, read the Bible. And by the way, something happens when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is now in you and gives you understanding. Your eyes will be open when you start to read the Bible if you're a believer. Good thing to, to repent of your sin and accept the, the work of Jesus. It's not just that the story is there, it's, it's there to be claimed and to appropriate the, the salvation of Jesus in our own lives by accepting the work of Christ. Don't, don't miss that. If you're not saved, if you're not you know, forgiven of your sins, can I just say, the Bible is rich. Don't miss it. It's there and it's, it's a beautiful invitation to have you accept Jesus, the, 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 the one that the whole book is all about. May the Lord give us ears to hear. And Lord, as we close this morning, I pray that you just, uh, just help our hearts to burn as we read your word. And, and as we go through the Bible, I pray that your word would go through us and do its work in our lives. Lord, we're thankful for the living, powerful scriptures that we get to read and study. Um, bless these, your people who've taken time and, and see even as a church congregation, what a joy, Lord, to be uh, an under shepherd, a pastor of a church that likes to go through the Bible. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful for each of these people, but I pray that, that it wouldn't just be here uh, in our little corner of the world, but I pray that churches would more and more see the value of your word, not just reading little scriptures here and there, but the whole, in the volume of the book. May, may there be more and more churches that will come up and, and just go right through the scripture, um, reading every word, every verse, every chapter, every book, um, that life might be imparted. So we pray you'd cover and bless. And, and now as we go our way, we rejoice. We thank you for your good, your good word. And thanks for being here with us on this Sunday morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.